If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We have spent the last four weeks now really on a very small section in Romans 3. Uh, but today we're going to pick up the pace. Uh, we're going to move a little more quickly through some verses. Hopefully we'll, you know, we won't stretch Romans out for a decade or so. So Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 27. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, we ask that through your spirit, you would open up your word to us. Don't just open up your word, but open up our hearts and our minds to receive that word. Jesus, I pray that we would hear your invitation to us this afternoon. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, be honest with me. How many of you completely checked out when I read the scripture? Anybody? Thank you. We've got a few honest people. Uh, I almost did, and I'm the pastor, and I was reading it. Uh, so it's okay. Uh, the crazy thing is this, is that these are some of the most important words you will find in the entire book of Romans. Uh, I mean, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's pretty much the heart of the gospel, 
And yet it's just kind of hard to work your way through this text. Uh, it's okay for Romans to be hard for you to acknowledge that. Uh, there are times, you know, we, we talked about when we introduced Romans that the apostle Peter even considered Paul's writings to be hard to understand. So give yourself a little grace. Uh, but Paul can be so dense at times that um, you have to move slowly. I mean, we have spent the last few weeks simply defining terms. We've defined words like righteousness, justification, forgiveness, atonement, propitiation. Uh, we've been slowly working our way through that. I, I have about 20 different commentaries on Romans, and they're scattered pretty much in every room of our house. My wife is just sick of me leaving them everywhere. Uh, but I, I've been gradually just working my way through them because I, I need to go through them to understand um, what Paul is talking about. But I want to say that you don't have to have any commentaries to understand the text that's before you this afternoon. You don't, ha you don't have to have any commentary at all. Uh, you don't have to have any knowledge of Hebrew or Greek. Um, you don't have to have even a study Bible. Um, there's, there's no different translation possibilities here. The only thing you really need to understand the words before you is you need to have raised teenage daughters, okay? <laughs> if you have raised teenage daughters, you, you get this. I have three teenage daughters. Without a doubt, they have been my best commentary on this. Uh, now, for those of you who don't have teenage daughters, you can rest assured you can still understand this. It's just going to take a little more work for you because what I'm going to need you to do is to remember back to the time when you were a teenager, to remember back to the time when you were in junior high or in high school. So I want you to open up that really painful area in your brain that you have closed off, open it up and, and go back in time with me to that period. If you can remember that time, you probably remember, you know, you had a number of really good, nice teachers, um, but you probably don't remember anything from your classes. I don't. Because education didn't happen when you were sitting behind a desk listening to a lecture for 50 minutes. Your education during this period happened in those five minutes in between classes as you had to navigate the halls. That's when you learned about life, isn't it? Remember that? That's when you learned about the pecking order in life. You learned about the, uh, you know, where your social standing was in life. You, you learned how things worked. You saw the groups that you, you desperately wanted to be a part of, maybe some friend circles. You, you wanted to be in with that group there. And then, of course, the cafeteria was the greatest teacher of them all. Uh, can you remember going into the cafeteria for the first time? And it's just, where do I go? Where do I? You, you so desperately just want to belong. Uh, I mean, when I was uh, a boy and I had to go into the cafeteria, it was just way before the time of cell phones, where now you could just like pull out a cell phone and act like you're looking at texts or different things, you know, to kind of hide the, the fact that you're being emotionally wrecked in this moment. <laughs> I actually had to just stand there with my tray looking, someone please accept me, please accept me. And you're looking around and that's all you want is to get in. You want someone to let you in their circle of friends. Now, the biblical word for this is justification. That's the biblical word for it, justification. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked how uh, we defined the word forgiveness. And forgiveness is when you are pardoned. And forgiveness says you are free to go. 
justification, it says, you are free to come. You are free to come and to be in my presence. And this is what you are looking for. You're looking for an invitation to come in to some group. So how are you justified? How do you get in? Well, as a teenager, uh, you had to prove you were worthy, worthy of that group. You had to prove that you were a good fit. And so you would do things like you would try to do the same activities as this group. So if you were in a school where everyone, for some reason, seemed to love cross country, well, you know what? You would buy some running shoes and you would join the cross country club. Or if your school, everybody loved to play volleyball, make out tryout for the volleyball team. Well, that's, that's what you do. You would learn how to play volleyball. Or if your school was really big into their school plays, you never knew you liked drama so much, but now you want to be an actor or an actress because you want in. And then, of course, you would have to change your appearance. You would have to dress a certain way, style your hair a certain way. Even if, you know, you wanted to look like you didn't care, it took a long time to get just the right look that you didn't care because you still have to look good while also looking like you didn't care. Uh, I think, you know, thank goodness, my two youngest daughters, they're in a school where they have to wear uniforms. Best invention ever, like best idea ever to have school uniforms because getting dressed now takes no time at all. I mean, before it would have probably taken, you know, an hour for them to get ready. But now their clothes aren't a statement. They're not out there trying to make a statement. They don't have to worry about what doors are going to open or close to them that day based on their clothes. I I didn't have that advantage when I was growing up. Uh, I'm a child of the 80s. And so I grew up when IZOD shirts were a big deal. Um, I don't know if, if you remember those Izod shirts. They're probably still around. I don't know. I'm not cool or hip anymore. Uh, but I, we were in a family that couldn't really afford Izod's. But my mom knew I really wanted to fit in. And so what she did is she bought me one Izod when, when I was little. And, uh, and I wore that. But then I grew fast. Um, like, you know, I was probably like this height when I was in, well, probably this height when I was in fifth grade. And then I was this height in seventh grade. I haven't grown since seventh grade, but I, but I went through a whole lot of clothes in that period. My mom bought one eyes on, and then she would cut out the, uh, the alligator, the little alligator logo. And then she would go to Kmart and she would buy another dress shirt. And then she would sew on the little alligator. And I did that over and over and over because she wanted to make sure that when I went to school, I could fit in. And I so desperately wanted to fit in. How ridiculous is that? But can you remember that? I mean, can you remember like how desperately you wanted to be a part of a group? And the truth is we don't have to look back to those teenage years to remember this because those desires to to fit in never went away. Um, today, we had you know, a bunch of new college students coming in, a lot of freshmen. Some of you might be freshmen as well here. And uh, you experienced the same thing your first days on campus, experiencing that now. You're, you're on campus, first time you're away from your parents' household, and you're just looking around, trying to fit in, trying to get into that group. Some of our college students, they went the route of going through rush. That was a, you know, an easier way to just like get a part of a group. And they were devastated. 
Some of you were devastated when you did not get into the fraternity or the sorority that you wanted. And why were you devastated? Because a group you wanted to get into said you were not worthy. You're not worthy. Others of you, you got into you know, your fraternity or your sorority of choice. You got in there and you were absolutely elated. I got in. And then you realized the moment you got in, there was actually another circle in there. And you wanted to get into that circle now. And then you realize, you know what? If you get into that inner circle, there's actually going to be another inner circle. It never ends. You always want to get to the inside of some group. And you don't, you, you know, you don't outgrow this. Adults, you understand this. Because we still keep trying to justify ourselves. We try to justify our existence by showing people we do indeed have worth. And the way we do this is we, we present evidence that says, look at me, look at me, I matter. Look at the cool places I've been to. Uh, look at the important job or the important career I have. Look at the school I went to and the degree I got. Uh, look at my, my, my good works that I've done. Look at the neighborhood that I live in. Look at my ethnicity. Look at the color of my skin. Look at all these things. Anything that you think is going to open up doors for you that presents you as worthy. And what you're trying to do is to justify your existence. Sometimes we try to find justification through another person. And you think, I am somebody if I have a boyfriend. I am somebody if I can get married. I am somebody if I can have children who love me. Uh, any of you mom or dads ever, you know, blow up one time at dinner with your kids when you fix them a meal that they've rejected? Any of you ever have that? You know, you just, you just blow up and you find yourself, it's almost in slow motion as you're saying these things because they were said to you when you were a child. You're like, I slaved all day working in the kitchen. And this is the thanks I get. I do all of this for you. And yet your anger betrays you because you're not doing any of it for them. This is all about you. The reason you were so angry is because you didn't get the validation you were looking for in doing this. You didn't get the affirmation you were looking for in doing this. This had nothing to do about your kids. It was you seeking justification from your kids. You wanted them to tell you you were worth something. And we, we do this all the time. What, what the word that Paul puts on all of this, us presenting our evidence out there that, that kind of says we're worth something to justify our existence, the word he uses for this is boasting. This is why Paul here introduces this idea of boasting um, when he, he meshes it with justification. It's an odd connection, boasting and justification. But Paul understands that one of the ways that we most commonly try to justify ourselves is by boasting. What he means by that is we like to point out to people how we're better than other people, how we're worth more than other people, how we are more deserving of acceptance. Now, of course, you just can't go up to another person and start praising yourself. I mean, you can't be that obvious. Um, and the word praise and the word boast are the same word there. You, but you, you can't just praise yourself. You have to do it in a more 
subtle way. Um, I'm actually a master at doing that. I'm a master at praising myself. I'm a master at boasting. I'm like the Yoda of uh, finding subtle ways in which I could boast um, because I can make my boast about myself look like other things. I can disguise my boast, for instance, as a praise for another person. So I can, you know, maybe praise another pastor by saying, oh, that pastor, he is, he is so good. His church is booming. I mean, he is a really, really good preacher, isn't he? I mean, and gosh, isn't it just so great that he has such an amazing facility and he only has to preach once so he can stay fresh as he preaches and, and he's allowed to preach like 50 minutes? I mean, like what a gift that he has. Am I praising that pastor? No, I'm boasting. I'm subtly letting you know that, you know what? If I had those things, man, we'd be booming. Boy, if I had those things, I'd be so much better. I can also disguise my boast as a moral outrage. So I can, you know, watch some politicians speak on TV and I can say, I mean, what a clown, what a buffoon. Such a liberal idiot. And when I say something like this, what I'm doing is I'm letting others know, subtly, this really isn't about them, it's that I see myself as so much better than I'm more intellectual. I'm morally superior to this person. And then if I could get a few others to join with me in this, isn't that, you know, and they're like, yeah, now I form my group. Now we're in the end. This person's out. And what I'm doing in all of these things is I'm jockeying for a position. I need to show that I'm more worthy of other people. I am worthy of your acceptance. And of course, what I'm ultimately after is saying I'm worthy of God's acceptance. In other words, I'm looking for justification. But what Paul is teaching us here is that my boasting shows that I do not understand the gospel. Or at least the gospel has not penetrated as deep as it needs to in my heart. Because boasting is antithetical to the gospel. Because we cannot boast about our works if we're not saved by our works. That's why Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, if we were justified because we were somehow better than others, well, we could boast. But since we are saved by faith and not saved by anything we do or present, we cannot boast. This means that if you catch yourself boasting, this should serve like a giant red emergency warning light blinking, saying, you don't get the gospel. You don't get the gospel. You're trying to relate to God the wrong way. Uh, so my, um, my middle child just got her driver's license this week. Warning. I just want to warn you guys. <laughs> it's always this dilemma, too, when you're trying to you know, help your, your child get a car. Because you want to buy them a tank, essentially, to protect them. But then you would be in danger if my middle child was driving a tank. And so you're trying to find the right balance. Um, but so two of my daughters are driving. But what I've told all of my girls is this. When it, when it comes to cars and it comes to warning lights, 
you can ignore all of them. That's, that's been my advice because that's how I grew up. That's the kind of cars I would have. They were always on. I mean, the tire pressure light, please. Like, I mean, you could just, you just ignore that, from, you know, till kingdom come. Like, so you ignore all the, more, the warning lights. They come, they go, except for one. I said, if ever the oil pressure light comes on, stop the car immediately. You got to pay attention to that one because if you keep driving when the oil pressure light comes on, you're going to burn up your engine. Boasting is your oil pressure light. When you begin to boast, that's the warning sin. You got to stop. Stop. Stop now. You don't get the gospel. You're trying to relate to God the wrong way. You're trying to build a, a justification or salvation based on works and not on grace, not, not on faith. So if you look down on a political party, or if you look down on those liberals or those conservatives, look down on the millennials or the boomers, you call the anti-maskers idiots or the maskers idiots, you do this, you are trying to justify yourself through works. You're trying to show that you're better. Christians should be the most humble people on earth. Do you think that's how the world views us? Do you think this past year when the world's looking at the people who go to churches, they're thinking, wow, the people who fill those buildings are like the most humble people I have ever heard talk. The most humble people I, I have ever seen. Do you think that's what they're thinking? Not at all. It, because it seems like at least in the past year or two, what's happened is the church by and large has forgotten about the gospel of, of grace. And instead we're adopting this gospel of patting yourself on the back and seeing how much, saying how much morally better and superior you are than others, to others. Now, one of the, you know, Paul's hammering that, don't you feel this? Like he is just hammering this doctrine home. And he's going to do this really for seven or eight chapters. But one of the ways he now moves on to really hammer this doctrine of justification by faith home with us is to say, all you have to do is look at the, the founder of our faith. Go, go to Abraham. And we're going to look more at Abraham next week. We're just going to kind of put a toe in the waters of Abraham this week. We're in a deep dive next week. But Abraham, Father Abraham, did so many good things. I mean, he was generous. He, he prayed all the time. Um, he, at one point, you know, he obeyed God by circumcising um, his household, him and his household. Another time he obeyed God by nearly sacrificing his son Isaac. If anyone can boast about something they do, it's Abraham. What does Paul say about Abraham? Look at verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, Paul here is quoting from Genesis 15. This is when God makes his covenant with Abraham. God makes some extraordinary promises to Abraham. And then we read that Abraham's response to God was that he believed. And when he believed, God counted, it was counted to him as righteousness. We do not read, Abraham believed God and he became righteous. It's not what you read. Nor do you read that because Abraham was righteous, he believed. No, what you read is that Abraham, when he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. And this word counted, it's a banking term. It's, it's the word credited. And the idea is this. Abraham gave God his faith. God then received that faith, and then he wrote it down on the ledger as righteous. Abraham is declared now righteous. And this was before Abraham had done anything. All Abraham had to do was believe. That's it. It, it sounds too easy, doesn't it? All you have to do is believe. I mean, you're, you're thinking, well, certainly Abraham has to do something. Or at least, you know, God said, you know, you seem to be a generally good guy. I'll make my covenant with you. But that's not how it works. He just has to believe. Once again, Paul hammers this home in the next verses. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I think verse 5 there is the clearest statement we have in all of Scripture to justification by faith alone. How we are saved by faith and not by works. Paul says, to the one who does not work. Or in other words, to the one who does not try to earn anything. To the one who does not try to jockey for position. For the one who is not trying to measure up. To the one who's not trying to prove their worth. To that person. To the one who does not work, but instead believes. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted or credited as righteousness. Now when Martin Luther read that word ungodly, he fell out of his chair. Martin Luther was also pretty dramatic at times. <laughs> I mean, you read this, you're like, I mean, if it's the first time he fell out of the chair, I'd be wild. But he's fallen out of his chair a number of times with different theology. But, but so he fell out of his chair when he read the word ungodly. God does not justify the righteous. He justifies the ungodly. He justifies those who lie. Justifies those who sleep around. He justifies the porn addict. He justifies the one who is having an affair. He justifies the cheater. He justifies the racist. He justifies the abuser. He justifies the controlling person, the bully. He justifies the ungodly. It's 
is hard to believe. I mean, right now, a thought experiment. I want you to imagine. Um, think, of the, think of the one person that drives you crazy, makes your blood boil. You get so angry when you think of the person. Don't look at them right now. Just, <laughs> just think. Um, we all know who this person is here. Okay, all right, no. Uh, just, just think of that, that, that one person. It could be a politician. It could be whoever it is. Like, you think of that person, and you, oh, you, you just can't stand them. Now, I want you to imagine now Jesus walking up to that person, forgiving them. Jesus putting his arm around them, laughing with him, celebrating with him, embracing him. How does that make you feel? Honestly, how does that make you feel? If it just kind of, you know, mm, just kind of rubs rubs you the wrong way, it's because grace rubs you the wrong way. If that rubs you the wrong way, it's because grace rubs you the wrong way. You still want to believe that you are somehow more deserving. You still want to be saved by works. You want a salvation in which you can boast. For some of this, this is, this is really revealing about who you really desire. Picture yourself once again, you're back in the, the halls of high school and there's that one group you just, you just want to be in, you just want to fit in. Imagine if that group said, you know what, you're in. But everyone's in. Everyone. Everyone now at the school, you could be part of our group. How do you feel in that moment? You're like, well, well I don't want to be in if they're all in. I mean, part of the fun is that you would choose me, that I could somehow prove that I had more value than them. And what you were saying in that moment is you wanted to be a part of this group because of your exaltation, not because you wanted to exalt that group. And some of us approach God the same way. We want to be saved by works, not because that exalts God, but because it exalts us. God's saying, if you desire me, if you actually desire me, all you have to do is trust me. You're in. Will you trust me? Will you humble yourself and let go of all of those works and trust me? That's really what the word trust is or believe there. Believe in, in faith is the same word. And it's a transfer of trust. When it says that Abraham believed God, or that we're, we're saved by faith, it's a transfer of trust in which I used to trust in all of these things for my justification, trust in all these, these things to say I am somebody, and now you're letting go of that. And you're transferring that trust to Jesus. And you're saying, I'm somebody because of you. I get in because of you. I trust you alone. You can't trust in both. You've got to let go of one and you've got to hold on to the other. And Paul says it this way in Galatians 6. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As Christians, we have one boast, and it's in Jesus. We boast in his works, not ours. Does this mean we just no longer do any good works? Not at all. Paul will address that later. It's a stupid argument. No, we're going to keep doing works. But now for the first time, you can actually 
keep the law because they're not going to the law for salvation. So now you can sing the law to a different tune, to the tune of faith. Let me end this way with a simple invitation to you. For those of you who your whole life, you've always felt like you're on the outside. And that's all of us. We always feel like we're on the outside, always trying to get into the inside of some group. I want you to hear that ultimately that longing is a longing for God himself. You're longing for God. And God is inviting you right now to humble yourself and to trust him. And for those of you who look back on this past year, and you see that was a year full of boast, will you pay attention to that warning light that's just blinking right now? Will you repent? And will you trust Jesus and celebrate a gospel of grace? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have saved us through sheer grace. And we relish in that. May it be our theme all the years of our life until we die. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and how you have relentlessly pursued us. Lord, I pray we would let go of all the things we've been putting our trust in and we would transfer that trust to you and to you alone. Thank you that we get in. Lord, may you become the longing of our hearts in this place. And we pray this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.